And let's turn to the book of Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter number 2. Thankful for God's grace. <clears throat> he, uh, the truth is, if we ever take an opportunity to look at our own lives, our own selves, how often we have been contrary to God. And I'm not talking about just before we were saved. I'm talking about even since we've been saved. The fact that God continues to extend His grace to us is one of the things that is so difficult for us to understand. I think we ought to always be grateful for it. I am glad that even though uh, I have still sinned since I've been saved, I'm thankful God forgives that. I'm thankful that when I put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that not only did He forgive all the sin that I had committed up until that point, but He continues to forgive day by day all the sins between now and this side of heaven. That it's all under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The day that we trust Him as our Savior, we had righteousness. The Bible uses the word imputed to us. Placed on our account. I have uh, three kids, they get more expensive as they get older. When they were younger, I had uh, set them up with small little savings accounts, checking accounts, and they were tied to my account so I could look at and keep an eye on, keep tabs on what they were spending their money on. And It was helpful when they went to uh, college and they were away from home. Occasionally, I would pull up their account, or they may call me crying and say, Dad, I've overdrafted the account. And all I had to do was just hit a button or two, and I could put some money on their account for them. I'm thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ, far more than any checking account, continues to give His grace and to put His righteousness on our account. I'm thankful that the Lord allows us to be seen as though we have not sinned by God Himself. When He looks at us, and when it comes to His judgment over whether we should go to heaven or go to hell, the Bible says that our sins have departed as far as the east is from the west. When it comes to living the life that we live, we certainly bear the marks and the scars of our sin, don't we? And that doesn't mean that life will never be difficult or that we don't have to bear the consequences of those things. But I am so thankful still for the grace of God that even when I break fellowship with Him, He tells me that if I will confess those sins, that He will be faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And He will restore once again that, that closeness, that fellowship with Him. In Titus chapter 2, Paul is teaching Titus some things about about pastoring, about ministry. In verse number 11, he teaches some very strong doctrine in the area of not only salvation, but the Christian life itself. And uh, he says in verse number 11, 
For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Father, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, and may it be the message for the hour, something that our hearts are standing in need of today. Lord, there may be some whose faith has grown weak or has been shaken, who need their strength, uh, their faith strengthened today. Lord, there may be some who stand here with sorrowful hearts or sit here today with sorrowful hearts and burdens that no man should have to endure. Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort. Lord, there could be someone here today in a group this size that would certainly not be out of the question that there would be someone here today that has never put their faith, they've never trusted you as their Savior. They may need to be saved today. They may need to take full advantage of the grace that you've extended to them. Lord, I ask that whatever the needs of the hearts are, I pray that through the preaching of this message and these words, through the moving and the leading of your Holy Spirit, I pray that the work will be done. May you do that which cannot be done by men, cannot be done through just the spoken word, but that which is done, the transforming work that is done in the heart. I pray that you'll bless all that is said and done here. Lord, may we, above all, bring glory to you and uplift you and point men to you. Help us and give aid where it's needed today. Give strength where it's needed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul begins this portion of what he's instructing Titus about by saying, "...the grace of God that bringeth salvation." Can I tell you this? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter number 2, For by grace are ye saved through faith. He uses the means, the process of faith. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And the idea is that God gives His salvation to us not because we have earned it, if there's a person here that says, well, uh, God owes me His salvation, I've worked really hard to earn it, then you're the furthest you can be from it. Because it is not by our works. It is by understanding that our works cannot save us. It's by understanding that our works can do nothing to save us. And that only by trusting what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, by putting our faith in Him, his completed work, His death and payment for our sin and burial, His resurrection, raising victorious over the death and hell and the grave. But only by His death, His burial, and His resurrection and our putting our faith in what He's done for us as payment for our sin can we ever hope to have eternal life. Can we ever have this knowledge, this understanding, this confidence, this belief that I am saved Saved, saved. I'm saved. The Bible says that 
in the book of Hebrews that He is able to save them. And I love the way He words it. The writer of Hebrews words it. He says, save them to the uttermost. Somebody said years ago that God saves them from the guttermost to the uttermost. doesn't matter how bad of a sinner you've been. God can and will save you if you'll let Him. People that die and go to hell don't go there because God sends them there. He go, they go there because they have chosen to not take the way of escape. They've decided not to go the path that God has given to them. Jesus in His earthly ministry said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. He doesn't tell you to stand in front of the mirror and quote that verse. He tells you to look to Him and understand that He is the way. Not you. You're not the way. He is. By the way, church attendance is not the way. I want you to be here and I want you to be faithful, but if you're expecting this to get you to heaven, it's not going to. Reading your Bible is not going to take you to heaven. Saying a prayer is not going to take you to heaven. There has to be a moment in your life where your heart understands your hopeless and helpless condition. And to say, Lord, if I'm going to get to heaven, it's only going to be by Your grace. And that is all I'm trusting in. I'm resting completely and wholly upon Him. By the way, the moment you ever do that, there is such a rest and a relief that comes. The burden rolls away. The peace, the joy that comes, that passes all satisfaction, all understanding in our lives, the satisfaction that comes from that. And Paul tells Titus here, the grace of God that bringeth salvation. Can I tell you this? There is no more doctrinally correct statement than the fact that it is God's grace that gives us salvation. It is by our faith in that grace that that salvation is applied to us. But then he says this. Look with me, if you will, in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation. I want you to notice this phrase because I, I think in the day we live, a lot of well-meaning and sincere people misunderstand this. The Bible says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to how many? All men. John chapter 3, verse 16, a very famous passage of Scripture. For all, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> for God so loved the world, I almost quoted John, or Romans 3, 23. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. There are people out there that will teach you today. There are people that will stand in pulpits today that will say that God has chosen some to be saved and some not to be saved. They will teach you that there is such a thing as irresistible grace, that God gives it to you and you don't have a choice in the matter. You have to be saved or those that are not uh, included in that. They would call them God's elect. They say that those that are not part of that are not chosen to be saved. Can I tell you this? Nowhere in Scripture will you find that that deals with salvation. You'll find here that the Bible says that He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When I read verses like that, and I read verses like verse number 11, it is very difficult for me to see how anyone could say that God chooses and plans for some people to be saved and some people not to be saved. The grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. That means He's appeared to you. 
If you're sitting here today and you say, Pastor, I, I've, I've never trusted Christ as my Savior. I, I've not been a very religious person in my life. I, I didn't grow up in Sunday school. My mom and dad didn't take me. I, I go to church and I live as best I can. I try to treat people nice. I try to be honest. Can I tell you, that's not going to get you there. I'm not trying to be mean to you today. I'm saying this because my heart yearns for you to trust Him as your Savior. I don't long for you to die and go to hell thinking that you're going to heaven. I long for you to know the truth. Hold your place here in Titus for a moment. Turn with me to 1 John chapter number 5. 1 John chapter number 5. I want you to notice some things here. 1 John chapter number 5, verse number, uh, verse number 11. Let's back up verse number 10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things, things we just read, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may, what? Know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. John, John did the same thing that we're doing today. He's telling folks, look, there's only one way. If you don't believe in what Christ has done for you, then you will die and go to hell. And he says, look, I'm not saying this to, to be hurtful to you. I'm doing it so that you will believe. So that you will come to Christ. So that you will know for a surety that you're saved. And I want to encourage anyone that's in this room today, and you say, Pastor, I've been in church years. I've carried my Bible for years. I even taught a Sunday school, or I sang in the choir, or I used to work on a bus route. I don't care what you have done for the Lord Jesus Christ until you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the truth is, you can do all of those things and stand before God one day and hear Him say, Depart from me. I never knew you. I want to urge you today, if there is one thing that this church ever does for you, it is to point you to the Lord Jesus Christ and how to be saved. I'm thankful we can preach on service. I'm thankful that we can preach on standards and how to live the Christian life. But if we do all of that and fail to teach you how to be saved, then we have failed as a ministry and as a church. You need to know. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I don't know. I hope. I really hope I do. I, I've, I've done all I can think of to get saved. Have you trusted Him today? Have you put your faith in Him today? It's important that we know that we have been saved. Not think, not hope. But I have done what the Bible says to do. And just as we sang earlier, we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. If you have done what the Bible said to do, you can sit here today with full assurance. No matter what doubt Satan may throw in your mind, you can sit here and rest in full assurance. I've trusted Him as my Savior. And unless God is lying to me, then I know that I'm saved. And we know God won't lie. I'll tell you this, if God ever does lie, you'll be the first one to know it. Because He'll cease to be God. And since the Bible says He holds all of creation by the power of His own hand, the moment He ceases to be God, this earth and us will cease to exist. So you can rest assured, if He ever does lie to us, we'll know. We'll know. I want you to notice what else He says here. 
For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. The fact that we get saved is what gets us to heaven, but then now that we know that we're saved by the grace of God, by His unmerited favor, because we understand that He gives to us freely eternal life, then it says that that, that that concept, the idea of salvation by grace alone, not by our works, but by our grace, by God's grace, that teaches us some things. What does it teach us? Well, it teaches us that we should deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Deny, deny it, what do we mean? Do we say that we don't believe in it? No, that's not the denying that takes place here. It's saying here that our bodies have a desire, our flesh has a desire for ungodliness and worldly things. That's the old nature. And it's saying here that we are to deny our own desires. Not to get saved. We got saved by what? The grace of God. But because we're saved by the grace of God, it teaches us some things. It teaches us that we ought to deny ungodliness in our life. Those would be things that would be contrary to the example and the principles and the commands that are taught in God's Word. The old flesh nature is going to keep pulling us that way. And and the truth is, oftentimes, more often than we like to admit, we give in to the old flesh, don't we? We need to deny it. You say, boy, Pastor, that is hard to do. It's easy. It's easy to understand what we're supposed to do. It's hard to do it. You ever notice that? Just like making the decision for the Lord Jesus Christ, making the decision is the easy part. Living the decision is the hard part. He says, denying ungodliness, and notice he says this, worldly lusts. Those things that our bodies and our hearts and our minds desire that belong to the nature of a corrupted, sinful world. We're to deny those things. The, the grace of God that brings salvation has saved us, and that has taught us that we're to deny ungodliness and worldly not, lust. It also teaches us not only what not to do, but notice what it says here. It also teaches us what we should do. And aren't we glad that the Bible teaches us both? Otherwise, we would have a vacuum. We'd be like, Lord, I'm denying this stuff, but what should I be doing? I'm glad it teaches us what to do. Notice what he says here. That we should live soberly. We should live soberly. That means we should have a sober-mindedness, a seriousness. And when it comes to the matters of uh, the Christian life, there ought to be a seriousness. I understand humor. I think God has a sense of humor. I think there are times that certainly God has used uh, perhaps even sarcasm in dealing with folks. And I believe that He has some humor But when it comes to the seriousness and the soberness of the Christian life, there needs to be a single-mindedness about it, a soberness about it. We need to take it seriously. We're living in a day that because there has been a, a, for a very short period of history here in in the history of humanity, we have experienced one of the greatest periods of religious liberty and freedom that man has ever endured throughout the history of man. And because of that, there has been a neglect or a lack of persecution on the Christians. And because of the lack of persecution on the Christians, you and I are most prone to not take the Christian life very seriously. 
You ever notice this, that when times of persecution, and you can check me out throughout history, during times of persecution, Christians become more resolute, they become more sober-minded, they become more serious-minded about the things of God. And literally, and I know we don't like persecution, but persecution has a purifying and a strengthening and an emboldening effect on the hearts of Christians. And I'm not saying to go out here and try to find persecution, but I'm saying this, knowing this, let's not let that be the case. Let's live soberly now while we have freedom to do so. Let's take the things of God seriously now while we have the freedom to do so. I'm amazed at how many people that named the name of Christ when COVID hit, that, that when the, 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 the politicians came out and they said, you cannot meet in church. It was amazing to me how many people said, I'm going, I don't care what they say because they told me I can't. And they showed up in the pews of the church. And a month before that happened, the preacher got up and said, we're going to have a special meeting on Tuesday night and nobody showed up. Why? Because we weren't taking the Christian life seriously, soberly. Paul says not only are we supposed to uh, deny ungodliness and worldly lust, but we're to live soberly. Notice he also says this, we're to live righteously. We're to live righteously. You know we're living in a time where even Christians are swallowing the lie that it really doesn't matter how you live on the outside as long as your heart's right. According to Paul, he says we're to live how? Righteously. That means our outside is supposed to match the heart. Now, I understand, and what has happened over the years is there has been a time period, and there have been people who have portrayed themselves outwardly to be something that they were not on the inside. And so a lot of people said, well, listen, uh, you need to focus on the heart. Don't worry about the outside, just focus on the heart. And at that time, the heart needed to be dealt with. But the problem is they took it the other direction too far. They dealt with the heart and said the outside doesn't matter. According to the Bible, it does. Those of us that have been saved by the grace of God have been taught. You say, well, Pastor, I didn't know these things. If you've been saved, the very fact that God's grace has given us salvation has taught us. Whether you want to say, I was taught that in Sunday school or in church or not, you've been taught. By the very fact that you've been saved by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit has put that in you. And if you're saying, I'm not worried about the outside, one of two things has to happen. Either you're denying the teaching of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you now, and you're rejecting it, or you haven't truly been born again. If you can do it without conscience, I'm not talking about, oh, I slipped up and and I gave in to, to, to sin that time, and boy, I'm convicted about it, I'm getting it right with God. Every Christian does that. I'm talking about those that can do it with no conscience. They're either saying, I don't believe the Holy Spirit in what He's doing in my life, or they don't have the Holy Spirit living in them. Because the Bible says that those that have been saved by the grace of God have been taught these things. And because of that, one of those two have to be true. We need to live soberly, we need to live righteously, and then I want you to notice thirdly, we need to live godly. Not only are we to live righteously when it comes to our morals, we're to be in obedience to the Word of God and its commands. But we're to live in such a way that we reflect the image of God Himself. We are to become as much like Him as an example outwardly as we can possibly become. Righteously means that we're going to refrain from sinful things. Godliness says 
there's an example I have, and I'm going to do everything I can to become like Him. Righteousness and godliness are different things, although they do go hand in hand. You cannot live godly and live unrighteously. Nor can you live righteously and not live godly. But they are different. One dictates our actions based on what's right and wrong. The other dictates our testimony as we become like Him to live godly. Now, knowing what Paul has taught here so far, he says this. We're to do all of these things looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I have, uh, I, 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 uh, the Bible word that is used here is hope. And the Bible talks about hope and, and the fact that those of us that are Christians, we have this hope of eternal life. But we, we, the, we don't understand the biblical use of the word hope here. It's not a wishful thinking. It's not, it's not the idea. We, we, in, in modern day, a lot of times when we use the word hope, we're like, boy, I sure hope that happens. That's wishful thinking. But there are times that we use the word hope where it is a confidence that something is going to happen based on the, the foundation and the evidence. For instance, I may say, uh, boy, because of the character of that young person, I now have hope for tomorrow. That means I have confidence in tomorrow because that person's character has given me evidence that I expect it to happen. And this hope is not a wishful thinking. In fact, when we wish, when we have a hope that is a wishful thinking, it brings about anxiety. It brings about uh, this this uh, this this painful. I, I was in a I was in a uh, I went to an aviation uh, seminar here a while back, and when we walked in the door, they handed us a ticket, and uh, they were giving out some door prizes, and they handed us a ticket. And they said, okay, uh, uh, we've got some prizes here. Some of them were little trinket things, a cup, you know, a little mug or um, a T-shirt, uh, something like that. But they had, a, they had a, a, about an $800 set of headphones. They were really nice. Uh, I think they were light speed Zulus or something like that. Really nice headphones for a pilot. And they're very expensive. And then they had a radio. And the radio had a, like a Navcom. And it was a very expensive radio, like maybe, I don't know, five or $600. And I thought... Boy, I hope I get that. And and I was I was sitting there all day long. In fact, they, they didn't do the drawing till the very end of the day. I was done with the seminar about noon. And I was hungry. I was tired. I was ready to go home. But I thought, boy, if there's a chance, I'm going to stay here. And I remember sitting there. And they started pulling out. Of course, they do the small things first. And they build up to the big ones. And I'm sitting there. And everybody's taking their time. And they're dilly-dallying. And they didn't call my number. And every time they didn't call my number, I thought, that's another step closer. I've got a better chance now of winning that. Oh, I hope, and I mean, I remember, and I remember they did the, 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 the earphones, and I remember my heart racing, thinking, here it is, I hope I get it, I hope I get it, and then I didn't. Can I tell you, there was anxiety and there was pain involved. That's not the hope we're talking about here. The hope we're talking about here is that because we know some things, we expect this. We have, let's put it this way, faith, let's use the Bible word that, that, that Paul uses here to Titus, we have hope. Notice this, he says, looking for that blessed hope. 
Is it because we wish that these things are going to happen? No. We know they're going to happen. We expect them to happen because there is evidence, there is God's Word, and there is God's promise that it will happen. That's the hope that Christians have. It's not a wish. It's an expectation. I looked up the usage of hope, and it talks about uh, the wishfulness of it. But then it gives a second definition, and it actually used Scripture to illustrate the second definition of it. The second definition of it in, in Webster's Dictionary is this. The highest degree of well-founded expectation of good as a hope founded on God's gracious promises. Isn't that a good definition? The highest degree of well-founded expectation of good as a hope founded on God's gracious promises. We have an expectation of eternal life, not because I've done good works, but because He's promised it. Paul told Titus, he says, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world, looking for, in other words, all the time we're doing this, Looking for that blessed hope. Is it a wishfulness? No. It's an expectation. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us. There there are several things that Paul says that He gave Himself for. First of all, it's to redeem us. Look what he says here in verse 14. Who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from how much? All iniquity. The price has already been paid. The debt has already been settled. He might redeem us from all iniquity. That is the primary reason the Lord Jesus Christ came to this world, but it's not the only reason. Notice the Bible says that He gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and what? Purify unto Himself a peculiar people. You know, the second reason He came was not only to save us, but He came to purify us unto Himself. You know, the Christian life ought to be marked with a steady growth of becoming more and more pure from the things of the world. More and more pure from the sinful nature that we used to have. It's interesting because it's not always an instantaneous you've arrived. In fact, Paul said throughout his ministry, I've not yet attained. In fact, by the end of his ministry, he considered himself the chiefest of sinners. But he did grow. We can actually see through the Apostle Paul's life his maturity. I know a lot of times we look at the Apostle Paul as an example. We say, boy, he was a great example from the very beginning to the end. Well, really, was he? I mean, when it went to the second missionary journey and Barnabas said, look, we want to take uh, John Mark with us, uh, Paul said, no, hey, I'm not taking him. Where was mercy then? Where was grace then? Where was the same spirit that Barnabas had when he first came to Paul for the first missionary journey? Where was forgiveness then? Paul didn't have it. But later on in his ministry, he referred to him as one that was profitable to him for ministry. Why? Because he grew. He was purifying 
being purified throughout his ministry. Paul had to grow just like every one of us had to grow. He wasn't he didn't get saved at that first moment and all of a sudden he was the great apostle Paul that we know today. He grew. By the way, we all ought to be growing. And can I encourage you in this? Not everybody's going to grow at the same rate. So before you're overly critical of someone who's not growing as fast as you think they should, let's let let's let that be God's dealings. He'll take care of that. Notice he says, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. There ought to be something distinct about us. People that get up and say, boy, you've got to relate to the world in order to reach them, not according to my Bible. My Bible says that God wants to set us apart. He wants to make us peculiar. He wants us to be different. There needs to be something that is a marked difference. In fact, isn't it amazing that in the early church, when they brought the apostles in for questioning after they had arrested them, the Bible says that they took note that they had been with Jesus. It was interesting that these were they, the Bible said, that had turned the world upside down. Why? There was something peculiar about them. There was something different about them. God had saved them by His grace, and there was something different. And we're living in a day where, uh, for whatever reason, and I don't understand it, those of us that have been saved by the grace of God are making every effort we can to become as much like the world as we can. And God said, I'm teaching you that when you're saved by grace, you're to become a peculiar person. You're to become a purified person. I'm not saying better than the world. I'm just saying we're all sinners. But we better show a difference that we've been saved by the grace of God. There better be something different about that. Because that's why He came. God gave us Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people. That's one of the reasons He came. If we were to say that I'm not going to accept Christ as my Savior, then we make the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in vain. Would you agree with me on that? A person that rejects Christ makes that, that sacrifice worthless. Does, don't they? If the reason that He came was to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify unto Himself a peculiar people, could we not also say that if we are not becoming more purified and becoming a peculiar person that we are also making the death and the purpose He came in vain. It's one of the reasons He came. And yet we're facing a generation of Christians, for whatever reason, who are rushing toward the world and saying, oh, we want to become just like them. We want to bring them into the church. We want them to feel comfortable. I want them to feel peculiar. I want them to know there's a difference. I want them to see something that's different. Something that they look at and say, boy, I wish I had that. Why else did He give Himself for us? Notice what He says, verse 14, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people. And I want you to notice this. Zealous of good works. You know one of the other reasons He came? Was to give us not only, not only the command to do His work, but He came to give us a zealousness to do that work. He came, to, he came to create the desire in us 
to put that spirit, to put that fervor, to put that intensity, to put that, 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 the, the idea of, uh, of being diligent in serving Him. Not only to grudgingly do what He said, but to do it with a zealousness, with an excitement, with a joy. I can't wait. With an expectation. These are the reasons God came and gave Himself for us. The most important one, that He redeems us from all iniquity. Certainly we would agree on that. But He did also come to purify us unto Himself, a peculiar people. And He did also come to, give, to create a, pers- a people that were zealous of good works. Paul ends it by saying this, These things speak and exhort, but I want you to also notice this, and rebuke with all authority. I think we could sit here today and say, Boy, amen, Pastor, that's good, that's good doctrine in Scripture, and I can see it there, and that's wonderful. But not only are we to, to proclaim it and to teach it, but when we find those that are teaching contrary to it, we are to take these things and to rebuke their teaching by showing these things to be so. We're to say, no, that is not right. They're teaching us to become like the world, to reach the world. That is not biblical. For us to be biblical, we must grow in purity. We must become a peculiar people. We must be zealous of good works. You say, how do I, how do I grow in my purity? It's easy. Well, let me rephrase it. It's very hard. It's easy to understand and know what it is. It's very hard to do it. We need to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And we need to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. He's not talking about when we get to heaven one day. He's talking about right now. This is the way we should live. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed. Father, we thank You for Your Word. What a wonderful truth it is to know of Your grace. Lord, above all, in the, in the message today, if there's someone here that has never trusted You as their Savior, they may have attended church, they may have carried their Bibles, they may have sung the songs. But Lord, if there's not been a moment...